Podcast. My name is Dash McIntyre. And my name is Adrian Polk, and we got a good one for you today. We're going to be talking about the economics and politics of climate change and how climate change is kind of a foregone conclusion, and the Republican Party can't really do anything to stop it. So right off the bat, uh, what are your first thoughts on this topic? On climate change? Uh, that yeah. it is bad. <laughs> yeah. It is not good. Things are not going great. The uh, yeah. temperature in the atmosphere is getting hotter, and that's uh, having all kinds of crazy effects in our climate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we're going to start talking about uh, somehow uh, how the uh, times are changing a little bit. Um, we're going to start looking at the political economy aspect of this, which is uh, kind of my background, at least as far as education goes, and way of thinking about how politics and economics work together. But um, So right off the bat, we have an interesting kind of fact in the world today, and, and that's just the Paris Climate Agreement, where you pretty much have every single country on Earth agreeing that climate change is a problem, and they kind of agree on a lot of the solutions on, on what we need to be doing. And a lot of that's basically uh, as simple as anyone can imagine, just stop using fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, notably, the Trump administration pulled America out of this agreement. Uh, but to a large extent, that doesn't even matter because multiple uh, states and counties and cities and even uh, big corporations in America are uh, still abiding by the agreement. So even though the Trump administration pulled America out and uh, has kind of prevented the federal government from really taking action, uh, we still have pretty large swaths of the American population and probably more importantly, the American economy and, and so-called blue states that are still abiding by these uh, uh, targets set by you know different countries around the world to uh, try to decrease our reliance on fossil fuels. So uh, what do you think about that, just the political aspect of that, that the, the Trump administration wanted to pull us out, the Republican Party is against any kind of international institution telling America what to do, but to a large extent it doesn't matter because the free market in America is kind of abiding by it in a lot of ways, and uh, a lot of states with millions and tens of millions of people businesses are all abiding too. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had a podcast before about some of these issues and particularly about how coal as an industry is basically over. And, um, there, you know, there's a report right now, I think NPR just published, and basically coal is, for all intents and purposes, over as like a source of uh, energy for much of American, uh, for much of the American economy. And that, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, a activists are uh, rule kind of going along with their pocketbooks and getting the pocketbooks of all these companies and cities, especially because you can just run the numbers and coal no longer is really that profitable. And the natural gas and other fuel sources are so much cheaper and that the only reason that coal can kind of artificially compete at the moment is because we still have so many government subsidies left over from, you know, at this point, what, like a, a century ago of when we were just kind of uh, getting the industrial revolution to take over America and turn it into a giant powerhouse like it is now. But the only thing keeping coal competitive is literally taxpayer money subsidizing coal plants, right? Well, I mean, natural gas that. is so much cheaper. Yeah, natural gas is, is very cheap. Uh, a lot of the natural gas is a, a product of our fracking. Um, so natural gas is very abundant in America. And North America is actually kind of unique geologically in that um, most of the frackable kind of natural gas is actually in America, specifically North America. And uh, America is kind of like with our, our very uh, high capital base and, and technology base, one of the few countries that can actually 
uh, properly frack and, and do what they call that you know horizontal fracking, where you basically wedge into a mountain, you fill it with liquid to to increase the size of the cracks and the the shale oil in there, and they can do two things: they pull out the oil from places you didn't think you could get a lot of oil, and a lot of natural gas as well comes up. So, I mean, that's really why America's become such a a, a strong energy producer the last couple of years, and, and and the country as a whole is finally no longer that reliant on uh, foreign fuel sources, which is good for us geopolitically. Uh, but one thing that's done is actually drastically decrease the price. So when you talk about uh, things like deregulation and uh, the Trump administration trying to promote coal and fo other fossil fuels, I mean, it, to, to some degree, they only come back just because of American technological, uh, technological advancements of being able to get that stuff out of the ground. And ironically, it's, it's plummeted the price so much that, you know, some of the the less well-off companies are actually at risk of going under. And uh, I mean, that's really the only thing fossil fuels has going for it is just that we've gotten so good at finding it and getting it out of the ground. Um, but there's an interesting trend that like kind of talking about what I was talking about before with like how the whole world and individual states are still abiding by the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, that it's not going to matter long term, right? So it's kind of like you see a lot of people squeezing the last kind of pennies out of the industry as they can going forward. Yeah, for sure. And essentially, because American, uh, so much of our American GDP and some of the bigger, more populous, more economically strong states are doing it anyway. I mean, for, I mean, like, let's say 60% of the economy is, or, you know, the cities and states are actually still going along with the Paris uh, Climate Accord. So like, what's the difference if nationally we have a kind of bellicose president you know, refusing on ideological grounds rather than on any practical grounds to not be in this treaty that almost the entire rest of the world is. Uh, like at a certain point, it kind of doesn't matter if the major key players are already doing it. And of course, then you look into like the kind of corporate side of it, where it's kind of corporate friendly, good public relations and marketing to want to be kind of conscientious climate players. So it's not going to be long. Uh, it's not going to be long before major companies like Walmart, Target, uh, you know, giant manufacturers, you know, they all want to be a part of it and they start advertising on it. And, and especially as climate change continues to get worse and people get more and more upset about it and angry, you're going to have more boycotts. And, you know, before long, just from public sentiment, it's not going to be profitable to take the cheap route and pollute, you know, eventually. Well, the profit's an interesting one because you're starting to see a lot of ETFs spring up around kind of green companies or companies uh, like Apple or Microsoft that say they are willing or actively working to try to get off fossil fuels themselves. Uh, there are a lot of companies that are looking at trying to use alternative energy, especially clean and green technology, to get more of their electricity from renewable sources. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but even in the finance, you're seeing a lot of companies and hedge funds uh, publicly, you know, saying they're getting away from investing in fossil fuels and trying to, you know, set a quota, a certain percentage or whatever of their yeah, total even the portfolio. Catholic Church came out and said that. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of interesting, and and that's one of those weird things with the coal industry right now is, is things are going to get pretty bad pretty quick, and uh, there's really nothing that like the Republican Party can do about it. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens because, I mean, you can obviously see that the Republican Party is kind of dependent on the fossil fuel industry uh, for 
a huge chunk of uh, campaign contributions, right? I mean, the entire Tea Party movement was funded by Coke Industries, which was largely a, a fossil fuel industry kind of corporation, and they were giving massive amounts of money to Tea Part, uh, the Tea Party movement, Tea Party uh, congressmen, and uh, you know a lot of that. It wasn't even dark money in that case. It was just well, money. That's kind from, of a good idea from the political mindset. You know, if the Koch brother, if all these fossil fuel companies are already throwing so much money to elect conservative, uh, you know, far right uh, government officials in a government for Republicans, you know, why don't Democrats just say, you know what, screw it? They're they're spending all this money against us anyway. Why don't we just do the conscientious thing and do the right thing in terms of climate and pollution and regulations and that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and here's some interesting facts that I, I was reading about while doing some research for this is uh, different analysts say different things, but there's kind of a consensus that to a large extent in large parts of the country, especially where solar, hydroelectric or wind power generation is already kind of possible and profitable. Uh, you have a situation where coal is just not profitable in those areas at all. Like it's actually more expensive for a utility company, let's say in California or parts of the Midwest with lots of wind or anywhere near the coast to get a lot of sunlight. Um, it's more expensive for those utility companies just to keep a already paid for coal plant running as opposed to just building brand new uh, clean energy sources of generating electricity. So that's an interesting thing. And if you extrapolate that into the future, what they see is, you know, some analysts estimate that uh, by 2030, 2035, you're going to have a situation where 96% by some estimates, 96% of coal plants are going to be uneconomic throughout the country. And, and, that, and that's an interesting fact, because even if they're wrong, you know, instead of 96%, say it's 90% or 80% or even 75%, that's a weird situation where literally 75% of any coal plants that are still running are running at a loss and the utility companies are actually charging their consumers more money for electricity than they would otherwise need to. And, and that's an interesting thing that you're seeing a lot politically, especially at the local county and kind of regions of state levels, because a lot of utility companies essentially have a monopoly, right? When you move into a new place, you don't get to pick and choose what utility company gives you the cheapest <laughs> Yeah, you don't have a list price. of three companies to look for. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's an interesting thing is because when the government gives you a monopoly like that, because that is literally a monopoly except for the fact that they're heavily regulated, you're starting to see even conservative regulators in conservative states tell these utility companies like, hey, you need to get off coal because you're wasting money and you're charging consumers, let's say, 10 percent, 20 percent more for their char uh, you know, electricity fees and, and, and all that. And like you have to change. So that's an interesting thing where even at the ground level, you have staunch Republicans who probably don't care about climate change, but because they don't believe in like, you know, you know, if you believe in the free market and free market solutions, I mean, to some degree, why would you allow a company under your purview to just waste people's money and waste the government's money in regulating the shit improperly, right? So they're telling utility yeah. companies, like, you need to move to, you know, some hydro or maybe you need to make some wind, you know, especially like imagine a state like, oh, you know, windy areas of Texas or something. And, and, you know, you're just burning coal for no reason when you get plenty of wind or, you know, maybe you have some of the best sunlight uh, available throughout the year in the entire country. There's no reason not to do that. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Have you heard of uh, any, like, I guess, cities or maybe not at the state level, but certainly at the city level of like just financing their own energy needs and uh, kind of like apparatus? Because I've seen this in terms of uh, 
like broadband internet and cable television, I believe. Maybe not cable television, not cable television, but like internet service. We're basically the kind of monopolizing companies that, you know, there's only one company in town giving you your uh, access to the internet or whatever. And so some cities will actually vote to just raise their own money instead of being screwed over by these companies and just have their own services like that. And then actually, you know, then the companies actually have a real competitor and they don't like that. So then they start, you know, raising a bunch of money to put into uh, local elections to try to put a stop to kind of yeah. more municipal efforts to basically just do what they're doing, but do it for the people, by the people, you know, for the people. Uh, is well, there that kind of see. thing in terms of energy? Yeah, absolutely, because uh, there are already... Um, I saw somewhere that upwards of a third of Americans either live in a city, a county, or a state that is pledged to be um, 100% renewable electricity by some point. And that's kind of an interesting thing because let's say you're a state that makes that uh, you know promise that we're going to be 100% renewable energy by let's say pick you know pick a year 2040 right. I mean it's kind of funny because you make that political decision and then the utility company that provides energy in that service literally has to abide by that or they'll lose their con- contract. You know what I mean? So right. I, I I think you're probably going to see that more and more, especially. Uh, I mean, when you look at the Democratic Party, right, this is not an issue that there's debate about. You look at the Democratic primaries for the president, right? Every single person on the stage said that, you know, I'm going to be the most, you know, uh, important person to work on getting renewable and green technology. And we're going to invest in this. And like even Joe Biden, even though he doesn't agree with everything in the kind of AOC camps, uh, Green New Deal, I mean, he still agrees in principle that we're way behind the curve and we need to do something quick and fast to really address this problem. Well, do you think there's a problem in terms of American politics, the way that all these cities and states can make all these promises, but then the political winds shift and a Republican can take over and just say, screw it, we're not doing any of that? Like kind of Trump getting in and just ripping up every deal? Well, that's the thing I think about, because I mean, if you I mean, if you agree that we live in a democracy, you have to realize that at some point a Democrat's going to win again. Right. Uh, Assuming we don't end up in a one party system, which isn't a democracy, you you have to, you know, bet on um, the other party winning eventually. So imagine even if Trump wins reelection in this, you know, November or let's say Republicans even win again in 2024. I mean, at some point you're going to have a Democrat and, you know, Here's an interesting kind of thing I've been thinking about today is that it doesn't matter how long it takes. And to some degree, the longer Republicans wait, they're just making it worse for themselves and their own ideology. Right. Because, yeah, you're going to have a more radical reaction exactly. to their inaction. And, and here's what's going to happen is it doesn't matter when a Democrat becomes president and then, you know, puts a Democrat in charge of the EPA and they start, you know, adequately regulating uh, you know, the coal and, and uh, oil industries and trying to prevent pollution in our public lands and lakes, waters, coastlines, all that. Like it, it, once if even if a Democrat wins for just four years, they could have regulations that, you know, it might be so expensive and kind of, I guess, with the times for certain companies to follow and abide them that even if a Republican wins afterwards, there's going to be no reason why that company reneges. Right. So imagine like 
And I think about this all the time because uh, when you talk about like the market of California and how many people live there, I mean, if California state government makes some kind of ridiculously high uh, gasoline, um, you know, miles per gallon standards for cars, well, then all of the car companies in Detroit, you know, like the big three are still going to follow California law. And even though people in Nebraska don't care, you know, at all about climate change, on the whole, right, they're still going to end up buying cars with higher miles per gallon because, you know, Ford is not going to just throw away, uh, you know, 40 million potential customers in California, another 20 million in New York, right? That's just how the American domestic economy works. And and more importantly, these companies aren't going to make two types of products, right? Ford's not going to buy another plant so they can make, you know, wonderfully green and electric vehicles for, you know, blue states. And then a separate expensive <laughs> yeah. factory to make polluting cars just yeah. for people in Nebraska <laughs> who don't care. Right. So, and that's then, true. That, that's with yeah. the car companies, especially, there was a massive push in terms of litigation because I believe the Trump administration was taking some car companies' kind of position in terms of like how they were pursuing it. Um, but the idea was that car companies, you know, some of them still have very ambitious green goals themselves. But yeah. they just they have the idea that like, well, we can't have two separate systems like you just described. Everyone needs to be one system. So there was a big, uh, big hoopla. And I know Toyota, for instance, was getting a lot of flack because Toyota is very is a largely green company. They have a lot of ambitious green goals. I think their um, their headquarters is like green powered. So they are ambitious, but they they took that kind of the opposite uh point or side of that lawsuit saying, you know, that we, we need to have everybody on the same page and that, you know, maybe California can have some consequences for not having the same, for being over the federal regulations, you know, but there was a big hoopla. I remember reading about that, but it is interesting because like, like you said, yeah, like, um, at some point will car, car, uh, consumers in Nebraska get pissed off. They have to buy, yeah. you know, the more, uh, economic or the more, uh, I guess, uh, pollutionally green car, you know, are they, are they going to get into their car every day <laughs> pissed off that it's a hybrid? Like, God I, mean, look at what's I, already I didn't happening. want a hybrid. I wanted gas only. Yeah. Look what, what's already happened with electrical vehicles. I mean, look at Tesla's stock price last year, right? Uh, Tesla sold, you know, sold 110,000 cars or something like that in 2019. And, you know, that's like a, you know, multiplied by four from the year before. And then, you know, even internationally, think of all the multinational companies, even if you're not just selling to America, it just makes it more important for you to actually be green because what's going to happen is the European Union is going to start putting all these regulations and restrictions on. And again, they're not going to have two sets of products, one for America and one for Europe, unless they want to just waste some money, right? And more importantly, just needlessly throw carbon dioxide and carbon emissions into the air. Right. And, clearly have shown you don't need to and i mean look at companies like even gm ford like they're all getting uh, big on electric uh gm right now is working on the uh fully electric hummer right like the hummer yeah. died because you know everyone thought this was a complete waste of gasoline it's too big it weighs you know it gets 14 miles a gallon or whatever um but now they're making a fully electric hummer and even ford is uh looking uh, at maybe 2022 coming out with a fully electric, you know, Ford F-150. And, you know, that's the best-selling truck in America. Imagine, like, a world where, you know, Fords just start saying, you know, why are we selling all these gas-guzzling, uh, you know, pickup trucks when we already have a factory making fully electric uh, 
pickup trucks that you know are right. just as good and, and probably in the future are going to get more gallon or uh, sorry more miles per recharge than you know a, a tank of gas would get you especially oh, for in a, sure. a big pickup the technology is getting way better because already now like these hybrid cars that are coming out you're actually getting faster acceleration and more horsepower because uh, especially with the hybrids you have those batteries that add that extra push like right from the get-go yeah, uh, and the and the extra motors rather that actually give you faster acceleration. So, uh, well, what do you think in terms of like the political maneuvering that Democrats should do for this? Like, let's say Trump gets reelected, right? Or let's say let's say for the sake of the argument, Trump gets reelected, but Democrats actually take the House and the Senate and have all of Congress, right? So, what mm-hmm. would the Senate do? I mean, I well, maybe that's a bad example. Let's say Democrats take the full government, and so that way for this. For this argument, you don't have the premise of the uh, or the threat of a presidential veto, right? Yeah. Should Democrats uh, should they get rid of the filibuster right away? Because I mean, there's no way Republicans are not going to filibuster some of these. And ambi- like, let's say Democrats went for the Green New Deal, there's no way Republicans aren't going to filibuster that. So you get some of these Democratic senators who are not committing to getting rid of the filibuster, even people like Bernie Sanders. Um, I believe in terms of like most of the presidential candidates, a lot of them, maybe even Joe Biden was not really against um, getting rid of the filibuster. And, you know, who knows if that's just a political statement for right now that they don't intend to keep if they actually got power. But, um, you know, a lot of Democrats in the Senate specifically really like the filibuster. And they say, hey, we've been able to stop a lot of Republican stuff like in the two years that Trump and the Republicans had the full control of government. So there are a lot of senators weary of getting rid of that. But then what do you do? Let's say we have the full government. We don't get rid of the filibuster. And then for this kind of like respect for this relatively arbitrary, ancient, in American terms, like Senate procedure that just everyone abides by of the filibuster. Like, what do you do? Like, do you have a moral reason to just throw the filibuster, like abandon it completely and just ram green technology and change and policy down the throats of a Congress, you know, of Republicans kicking and screaming. Like, I mean, well, I, to, to me, there's just no way. I mean, we, we talked about this before in terms of like a civil rights kind of revolution, a voting rights, you know, giant act that they can ram through. But at what point do we just have like the moral necessity to just say fuck it republicans have no right to debate on this issue we're ramming it down the throat of all these republican senators or even democratic senators who maybe are from like purple states that you know maybe don't want to piss off all their voters or something what do you think about the political mindset of this well that's a weird thing because i mean it's not like I would say that the Senate, it's very complicated because the Senate's not really a 50-50 chance for Republicans and Democrats to have control, right? The Republicans have a massive institutional uh, uh, advantage in the Senate just by how many states there are with no people versus how many of the big states with most of the people and how few senators they get. Um, So that's like the one thing I kind of worry about is if you were to break the filibuster completely because what we're going to see is, you know, it... The way the election looks like right now, like if the election were today, I mean, the Democrats are just barely going to get the Senate, right? And and, and, and when you look especially at the presidential kind of aspect of the election, you're looking at a potential landslide election that we haven't seen since like the 80s, 
essentially. And you have a situation where even though, you know, as it looks right now, Joe Biden's going to dominate Trump, the Democrats are barely, if they get control of the Senate, barely going to get it. So when you break the filibuster for the Senate, I mean, it, it, maybe it is a good institution to have just because of how hard it is for the Democrats to get control. If they break that institution com uh, of filibustering completely, then they, they, they could really screw themselves in every two-year period except the massive swing elections like 2008 uh, or, you know, hopefully 2020. I mean, that's 12 years in between, you know, Democrat control, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess 10 years considering yeah, what do you think about that? 2010. Uh, that's an interesting idea. I guess it would be like a gamble. Like, you know, if Democrats take the House and the presidency or whatever, and, they ha and they're able to, um, and certainly with the COVID stuff, like a lot of Republican go uh, governors kind of backing the Trump line of do nothing and pretend it's not going on. Like, I guess it depends, like, if the governors are involved, too, and then you have, like, state control and state legislatures. I mean, I guess Democrats could kind of gamble and say, well, if things go well in terms of state legislatures and governor races, we could gerrymander the shit out of the House. And then, ha you know, like the Republicans had basically, um, what, eight years of Republican control of the House thanks to their 2010 filibusters. I mean, I guess Democrats could take the gamble and just say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do the same chicanery that Republicans did and have our own, you know, six to 10 years of Democratic control. And then mm -hmm. in which case it wouldn't matter what happens well, in they're the never Senate have because that. they at least have that, that House they're never vote, gonna be able to. Know? They're never going to be able to give themselves the advantage in the Senate. That might work for the House, but it won't work in the Senate because every state gets two. No, I know, but I'm saying that that's their gamble as well. Well, yeah. well, Senate, you know, maybe we'll have it, maybe we won't. Maybe we won't have it for another six years, but maybe we can kind of, you know, at this point, you're, it's really cynical politics. We are basically saying we'll theoretically get rid of our Senate power as long as we can hold the House power and have at least half of Congress. Because, I mean, at least that way, then the House, you still have that vote against, you know, you know Nancy Pelosi or whoever the Speaker of the House is just say, you know, whatever Mitch McConnell passes in the Senate, we're, we're, it's just going to sit in our inbox on the House of yeah. uh, the desk of the Speaker of the House. Although, th you know, that's another interesting thought. I mean, we've had this discussion so much about like bringing in D.C. and maybe even Puerto Rico if it's possible. But it is interesting because Democrats, you know, they thought about bringing in D.C. in 2009. 2010 when they had that supermajority, but it's just it really goes to show the difference in political calculations because democrats you know even though that was the righteous thing to do right give uh congressional power or senate power to dc and let them basically have the same rights that every other state has in terms of representation in congress it's important but to democrats always add shows, too that dc has more people than quite a few states well yeah but the point is the Democrats thought about doing that in 2009 and 10, and they had the votes conceivably as long as, you know, some of those back, you know, back then there were more blue dog Democrats. Now mm -hmm. most of the blue dogs have kind of been run out um, or, you know, lost to the Tea Party and haven't been replaced yet. But basically, you know, Democrats were worried about how that would look. They were worried about the appearance of basically just giving themselves two new senators. So they ultimately kind of chose not to do it or focus on other bigger priorities like healthcare and things like that. But well, it's just, a good it, thing for this debate because uh, I think yeah. the last 10 years have shown that the Republicans do not uh, uh, govern with good faith and do not negotiate or, you know, conduct politics with good faith. 
So, like, right. if you just think, what would Mitch McConnell do? I mean, the fact that he literally stole a Supreme Court justice from Obama, it's like, screw you guys. We're making D.C. a state. Oh, yeah, we have 53 senators. Well, looks like we got 55 now. Make Puerto yeah, Rico a state, well, yeah. too. And it's ironic, too, because, again, like, that's the right thing to do. You have, like, this large, yeah. basically a small state that doesn't have any of the rights of all the other small states. So it's literally the right thing to do to extend you know, political power and representation to them. Well, that's just the uh, that's the uh, voter uh, suppression issue on, on the whole, right? You know, Democrat stance is uh, like we just want more people to vote, and maybe it's not our fault that if more people vote, we do better in elections. You know, yeah, maybe that's right. maybe that's more of a con for your party. But going back to this issue, you brought up something interesting: is what do Democrats do on like green policy or? like with the Green New Deal. And I think that's an interesting topic we could talk about for a minute because uh, first off, I think, you know, like I said before, the past 10 years is Democrats should go into, if they have control of both houses of Congress, they should go into the debate just want doing whatever they want to do, right? Don't bring in Republicans and water down your bill just to try to get one uh, Republican to say they're thinking about it only to say no at the last minute, right? So I say screw yeah. that. You know, See, that's an interesting idea because Obama kind of was famous Obama actually got the benefit of the doubt in a lot of political fights because, one, I think a lot of voters had the perception that Obama was actually trying to good faith debate and argue. Yeah. And Obama, you know, certainly you can see with the, the Obamacare debates, like how many compromises they started off with. And then Republicans were like just as obstinate anyway. But, yeah, you're yep. right. It's true that uh, Democrats would really just go for gold, you know, don't... Uh, you know, basically start off, you know, debating for the things you want, not starting off debating the things that you think will, you know, help Republicans maybe show good faith that they just show time and again that they're not actually going to honor. Well, here's the ironic thing, too, is because just like the Obamacare debate, I think the best solution for the, uh, you know, I don't think the Green Deal, sorry, the, the Green New Deal is that good of a policy idea, especially with everything encompassing it. So ironically, just like Obamacare, I think a good solution to start with is just what the Republican plan of the 90s was, right? And I think the government needs to implement a a very uh, steep carbon tax to start and just kind of let the free market do what it's already doing. Because, you know, I would make the case that maybe maybe 10 years ago, you know, maybe the government would need to do more. But since you already have so many companies working green, new, uh, green and clean technology um, and they're, you know, publicly... Uh, saying that we're going to abide by the Paris Climate Agreement. I think if you just put taxes on, on carbon emissions, you can s continue this process and just solve a lot of the problem on its own. I don't know how much you've read about the Green New Deal, um, and I would just advise any Democrats who you know, kind of have an ideological predisposition to love it and say, yeah, we need this to actually like kind of think about uh, what some of the ideas and parts of it are, because it has a lot of tenets. It's a, it's a, you know, when, when you have conservatives complain about, you know, a uh, ideological, uh, progressive, liberal utopia, it's kind of what the Green New Deal is. And I think Biden uh, has done a good job of saying he agrees, you know, we need to address climate change ASAP. We're way behind the curve, but maybe, you know, not everything in the Green New Deal is something we need to attack immediately. Well, I mean, if Democrats take full control of the government, I guess, uh, you know, the Green New Deal would be a great place to start the debate. Obviously, you're mm -hmm. going to compromise a little bit and take things here and out there. But I mean, I think I think we're past the point now of uh, Republicans acting in bad faith for so long 
that Democrats should, uh, I think we've mentioned this before, that on every issue, Democrats should basically have two plans. One, we're going to do like the most radical thing we uh -huh. want without any of your input whatsoever if you're not going to debate in good faith. Or you can help us compromise and come up with something kind of more middle of the road that actually has things you want and will make a good deal. But I mean, like too, for too long, I think the greatest mistake in the Obama administration was their idea to like compromise. And I think yeah, they really sure. exaggerated John Boehner and then Paul Ryan's ability to get their own caucus in alignment. Oh, absolutely. Like how many times did Obama basically say, all right, Boehner, <laughs> sorry, Boehner, <laughs> Boehner, you can, you can trash me all you want in public as long as you get the deal made. And then Boehner would say horrible things about Obama and say all this shit and then still not be able to get the deal. And he, you know, yeah. Boehner would come with it, like his hat in his hand saying, you know, oh, sorry, I thought I could get this deal, but the Tea Party, you know, caucus is killing it and I can't, I can't uphold my end of the bargain. And then on the other hand, you had like in Congress, you had a lot of, I guess, well-meaning Democratic senators that you had this like for a while, this pattern of like uh, the Gang of Eight, they called it, were on all these issues like immigration specifically, that like all of these Democratic senators with their Republican senator friends, uh, they, you know, they they had this idea like, oh, we'll get four Democrats and four Republicans on every issue and we'll have this small group and they'll make the compromises that, you know, they'll finally hash out a deal and then the entire chamber can vote on it. But even that, you know, failed because the gang of eight, you know, immigration reform there was the big example of that. Max Baucus, I believe, was the Democrat really wanting, I think, Chuck Grassley to kind of sign off on everything and have some kind of compromise. And then, of course, you know, we all know the, the immigration reform bill failed and all of the Republicans on the gang of eight, you know, they voted against their yeah. own compromise bill. So I think that, well, you know, if we should take a lesson of the kind of like lost decade of Democratic uh, possibilities, you know, oh, yeah. and, and again, have those two plans. You're going to help us come up with a moderate plan or we're going to ram down this liberal shit one, you know? Yeah, that's a good idea. Um but yeah, I think, uh, well, here's another thing I think uh, kind of in this is like what Republicans do even bring to the table to have good faith compromise, right? Because you look at the last, yeah. you look at the last four years and uh, Republicans haven't done anything except um, a tax cut, right? So they've, they had power of all branches of government for two years and didn't do anything but a tax cut. So like they don't have any ideas and they certainly don't have any ideas towards climate change because they've convinced a significant amount of their primary voters uh, i.e. the people who keep them in or out of power, that the whole thing is a hoax, right? And that's not just Donald Trump saying that this is a Chinese hoax to hurt the American economy. This is like everyday Republicans in Congress, specifically the Senate, saying, oh, I'm not a scientist, I don't know anything about this, and then refusing to talk to any scientists. They've also um, you know, done things like say, I'm not going to wreck the American economy and just to do something about this, you know, liberal, you know, ideological bullshit. Right. And I mean, they've just been ignoring the obvious nature of what climate change is going to do to our economy. And, and when you look at analysts and, and what they hypothesize about like loss of GDP worldwide or even just in America in the next hundred years, I mean, it's staggering. Right. And even if they're wrong, by you know a significant percentage it's still a staggering number they're talking about literally trillions of dollars being spent at, uh, to fix problems caused by climate change or to address problems of climate change right and like right. i mean that's the funny well, thing well, it, gets, it gets to the point that basically like republicans are so beholden to the kind of like big interests on every issue 
And, and, you know, I mean, we can harp on it all day that they don't argue in good faith. But in terms of the climate, right, you have the Koch brothers willing to spend any amount of money to help a far right conservative out primary from the right. Any 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 like even remotely moderate Republican willing to compromise. So, the, I mean, the Koch brothers would like Mitt Romney spent something like, you know, hundreds of millions, almost up to a billion dollars. Yeah. Just on the presidential race, and then they have this whole network of all these like newspapers that they own and different think tanks and different groups and organizations at the local and state level. Where really they, you know, if you're not going to tow the uh, the Koch brothers energy line, they will yeah. literally see to it and ensure that you do not, you're not even a Republican anymore. You know, you're a rhino, and you'll be smeared, and you know they'll just give money to any you know further right. Uh, like hooligan who's going to say, oh yeah, you know, climate change is a Chinese hoax. And the, yeah. the real money is by all of these scientists going out to Greenland and studying it for a decade and then writing a book. They're the real billionaires. It's just yeah. absurd. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that part's crazy. And, and, and I mean, talk about the bad faith too. I mean, you're talking about the senators from states who don't even have like very big amounts of coal because coal really is mainly in five states. You know, five of our 50 states. So that means you have uh, Republicans in 45 states who don't even really have an economic dog in the fight other than their political ideology. Uh, and they're voting to basically ruin the environment of states that they're not, in you know, don't come from or that their right. constituents don't live in, which is a little, little perverse. Um, See, that's, so that's a good point, strange. too, because, like, it really gets down to just how much money there is in coal still, right? And, like, all of that money, it's like... Uh, I said that the NPR report said that like in 10 years, like coal companies will like literally not be profitable anywhere in America. Like literally well, they're no already, aspect. Yeah, they're well, already yeah, yeah that's true. Either. They're already not without the subsidies, but even with subsidies, they can't keep up. So it's really weird then that like in the political situation, it's like, you know, you have all of these far left people saying that the Democratic Party is like no different than the Republican Party. But like when you think about it, there really is a difference between actual corruption and the kind of appearance of corruption, right? Because Republicans are like actually corrupt. Where like you know, there's all kinds of articles and interviews where Republicans will admit they have to you know toe the Koch brothers line, right? Because the Koch brothers, you know, I think each of them is making like four billion dollars a year in profits or something like that. So I mean, obviously, them spending. Uh, a billion dollars every four years for a president when together, well, I guess now there's only one of them, but you know, each of them was made, like together they were making $8 billion. So for them to continue making $8 billion a year, all they had to do was spend $1 billion every four years to, you know, make sure a Republican tries to get elected. Like that is maybe legit corruption, whereas the Democrats and some of these more far right or far left uh, kind of primary uh, insurgents are complaining about like maybe Democrats who are coming from purple states and have different uh, or difficult political calculations, or just kind of educated Democrats who realize that, like you said, maybe not all aspects of the Green New Deal actually make sense in terms of like scalability or the current economic situation practical, in a lot of yeah, states. Practical, yeah, practical uh, politics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's here's an interesting idea I've had. Um, let me know what you think about this. Um, 
So I was thinking of climate change and addressing it with, uh, you know, subsidies of clean and, and green technology uh, by the federal government or at least by the state and local uh, jurisdictions. Um, but I was thinking of it as a kind of an interesting tool to try to decrease uh, some of the economic inequality, right? So if you look at uh, green technology today, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, any of the kind of economic game changers of the past, right? And, and what I was thinking about is like, imagine if you get in a time machine and they tell you, you can go to any time you want in the last 200 years with like a million dollars to invest in whatever you want, right? So, I mean, like, what do you, when, when do you go, right? And, and there's a, a ton of uh, different uh, possibilities you could choose. I mean, even if you don't even know that much about the industrial revolution or the history of this country's like economy, but like, imagine you went back to like the 1850s and invested in trains, right? Or oh the 1880s and, <laughs> right. and invested in like, you know, chemical companies when they first started being able to actually apply the periodic table and make new, uh, make new uh, compounds, like things like plastics, right? Or, I mean, even if you went back to the 20s and 30s and started investing in coal and oil, I mean, you would make so much money, right? right. So in a lot of ways, that's literally what green technology is now because... I mean, to a large yeah, that's degree, probably a good point. yeah, I mean, there's a shelf life on fossil fuels, right? And that fossil fuel shelf life is like 2050 when the Paris Agreement says we need to be off, um, well, not only off fossil fuels, but also working to pull carbon out of the air, right? So, uh, And there's at some point, the same point that, you know, fossil fuels are kind of finite and at a certain point it's going to become really difficult and expensive to find new sources. Well, oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, natural gas kind of mitigated that a lot because, I mean, that puts a lot of pressure off, you know, some coal and oil, obviously. But um, and natural gas is extremely abundant, especially in North America. But to, to follow this point, though, is like you have and, and it's almost kind of like a democratic uh, economics in a way, because uh, one of the biggest problems economically with getting off fossil fuels too quick is what they call um basically uh stuck investments right investments that are stuck in something that they you know you can't make it liquid anymore you can't pull the money out right so if you invested in a utility company that bought you know several dozen coal plants in the last five years well you know coal plants you know you build it they're super expensive cost 100 million dollars and you know you get big loans and then you pay off the loans over 10 years and then the coal plant's not profitable for 12 years or so and then you know you hope to be profiting off it for the next 30 years after that, and that's how you profit off a coal plant, right? So when you look at the economics, you have tons of potentially stuck money in a dying industry, uh, which is coal and even natural gas, if you use that 2050 metric as kind of like uh, a way to look at where the economy is going. And it makes sense because most countries, including most states in America, are still abiding by it. So like imagine going back to the invention of the automobile, and as Ford company... Ford Motors is like, you know, bringing some of the first Model Ts off the production line. And then you go and invest $100 million in horse farms. And it's just like, why did you do that? Right. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. like kind of where we are with like fossil fuels, especially if, you know, we have a Democrat and Joe Biden, you know, and Democrats work hard to actually start moving this country in the right direction. But so in one way, I mean, I think it's OK to allow a lot of these stuck investments to stay stuck. Right. Because I think there's a moral hazard of trying to bail out or soften the blow of these big investment hedge funds and individuals who've invested billions of dollars in something that literally kills people, right? 
Fossil fuels, you can literally point to things like childhood asthma and respiratory diseases later in life that kills people. So, I mean, to every degree of fossil fuels that get released, you can literally economically make a estimate of how many people you're probably going to have medical problems or death. And, and, and that's a weird way. You're socializing these costs, right? But and, and here's where you kind of fix the well, economic unless, inequality. unless you take the Republican mindset and don't give any health insurance, yeah. any any uh, economic incentives for some of the people possess. There is a libertarian mindset, in which case it doesn't matter what costs you privatize and socialize, mm -hmm. you know, or socialize. Well, yeah, that's rather. true. But that's a weird thing. And, and this is where I think this is actually a great opportunity for America to cut down on some of the economic inequality because you have so many people who don't have any investment whatsoever. But like, so here's an investment opportunity like the trains or plastic or chemicals or coal or oil, you know, a hundred years ago plus, right? So, I mean, if everyone just started, all Americans started investing some money in, they could all make some money, especially with like diversified, you know, portfolios investing in this stuff because, I mean, to some degree, I mean, this is like the 1840s when, you know, not everybody's going to need a horse next year, right? There's going to be these things called trains. And in the same way, you know, not everybody needs a, a gasoline guzzling car. And like everyone acknowledges we have to get off fossil fuels, right? If, Amer if America or the world is going to have a, a successful future 200 years from now, we literally have to get off fossil fuels in the next 60 years, right? You know, maybe you can say the UN's goal of 2050 is a little premature. Uh, again, the important thing to note is that, you know, people worry about going past two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels of, you know, average global temperature. But like we can go past that point as long as we just pull more carbon out in the back end. Right. So like in that degree, as long as we're moving in the right direction, we're good. But that's where this like investment opportunity comes, because we all know that in the next 50 years or less, the entire economy needs to be shifted off fossil fuels. And if you look at the amount of money ExxonMobil and all these gasoline companies make a year, like that is money that someone else can make from a green technology and a green company. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's why I think it's such an interesting uh, uh, opportunity for a country like America to even... Uh, get off some of uh, or to to get rid of some of its economic inequality and then I mean the the possibilities are endless if you really think about it like you know Andrew Yang talks about the the freedom dividend right imagine America as a whole started investing billions of dollars into you know saving the environment but then you know gave some of that money back and kickbacks as dividends to the American people you know, everyone's seen how good and what a great economic effect these, uh, you know, COVID times um, uh, $1,200 payment did, right? A lot of that money went directly back into the economy and helped prop it up. Well, what do you think giving, you know, a small cut of shifting the entire country off fossil fuels is going to do? You know what I mean? Quarter after quarter or year after year. Yeah, that's a good idea. I guess then the, the counter argument with the, the, that uh, you essentially would then have like, governmental companies or stock options that then the government would maybe be incentivized to protect you know and it, maybe it would get away from some free market principles but well no it's not free market because uh it, it would just be like we already subsidize coal and um 
uh, for example, uh, oil, right? So uh, America, the, the federal public land, right, that the government owns, we literally lease that to coal companies to get the coal out of the ground on federal public land. And coal companies, when they, you know, first off, they have to bid, right, to get that contract. And then the federal government actually charges coal companies, uh, you know, price by the ton of how much coal they make. They also require certain uh, bonuses to be fed, paid to the federal. I mean, there's a whole pay structure. So the U.S. government actually profits off coal companies getting coal and mining it out of uh, public land. I mean, you could clearly make the case it's not nearly enough, and maybe the American taxpayer should make way more money from this uh, pollution uh, that caused by the coal companies getting the coal out of the ground and then burning it. But why can't you do the same thing for any other industry, right? So when you say it's anti-American or it's undemocratic or it's, you know, uncapitalistic, it's like we already do this with fossil fuels. Why don't we just do it towards something more productive and more kill people? What do you think about doing something vindictive like, you know, some of these uh, oil companies that have known since the 70s off their own research that basically they're ruining the planet and destroying like our climate stability? At what point do you think that like some of that blood money, I guess, could legally be like restituted to the government or the victims or, you know, some of these uh, like billionaire CEOs or whatever, like could like half of their money? Or their profits that have come be like taken away or fined for like well, kind of knowingly doing deals with like dictators, you know, like maybe doing deals with Putin and Russia and intentionally, you know, spending all of their uh, like attention politically on getting in the way and stopping any regulations that would inhibit their ability to maybe poison the earth and kill people. Well, I think there's always a problem when you try to retroactively punish someone for something that might not have been illegal. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> we well, take the, yeah, but in terms of like maybe um, like that freedom, freedom dividend, like if you had some kind of like value added tax on it going forward or something like that, I don't know. Just, well, so I mean, just spitballing an idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the interesting thing with taxes. You can kind of get away with anything you want. Right. And, and I would recommend that a democratic controlled government do things like that to get the country in the right direction. Right. Uh, I mean, there's everything about the fossil and oil industry literally doesn't right. make sense. Especially. Like, Exxon, even, yeah. For instance, Exxon Mobil, you know, like they're making uh, like six billion dollars in profit a year or something, something over a billion dollars in profit. Like, at what point can the government just say, you knew in the 70s that you were screwing everything up, so now, like, all of those profits or some, I don't know, like, not in terms of, like, nationalizing the company or whatever, but, I mean, at some point, these obscene profits that are breaking records every single day or every year, uh, you know, they should be applied to the people that are hurt by this, I guess, in some way. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think... I mean, that's one thing uh, a democratically controlled EPA could probably do is just drastically increase the size of fines. For example, uh, you know, some of those companies that spilled oil, like oil spills and stuff, got off kind of easy, especially when you consider how many profits they make a quarter or a year. So I think like, I mean, imagine a more just society where companies actually got fined adequately or appropriately for the damage they caused. Um, I don't. That, that's a weird thing, right? So if you're going to go back to the 70s and find them for every profit they made, uh, first off, they're not going to have enough money to pay 30 or 40 or 50 years worth of fines. <laughs> so that's kind of problematic. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah. I think what the government <laughs> just needs to do is start immediately proactively fighting the yeah. problem from now and not worry so much about right. the, future, uh, the past. Yeah, I guess going retroactive is always kind of a problem. 
But I think, yeah. uh, what do you think about this? Do you think the fines should be so great that businessmen here in America take after the kind of, remember the uh, the classic Japanese incentive that if you screw over your company, you commit suicide? <laughs> like, should the fines from the EPA for polluting be so big that American businessmen start like committing suicide out of shame and humiliation for ruining the planet and their, their own, like, you know, local cities where their factories and, uh, you know, mining operations are or whatever? Well, is that yeah. is that a good goal? Is that a good yeah. goal to get into? Well, I mean, that might be extreme, and I mean, you could clearly make a case at some of the you know higher ups of certain companies that make you know, I mean, everything you do right as a multinational company that you know maybe has uh, more revenue than some small countries, right? Uh, right. It's, most of what you do has serious consequences for lots of people, not just your company. So, I mean raising fines and, and possibly making even some decisions that certain CEOs make, you know, liable for, uh, you know, uh, federal, um, I guess, uh, investigation and, and maybe criminal charges. Like, for example, if you have a company that woefully, not woefully, I should say, but, uh, you know, uh, specifically avoids a regulation or abiding by it, or, you know, instead of getting like a $20 or sorry, $20 million fine when the profits they made from the oil, you know, prior to the oil spill, uh, you know, maybe uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter, you know, maybe on, on top of a hundred million, hundreds of millions of dollars in fines, you actually punish some of the people who okayed that plan, right? Yeah, I think about this a lot in terms of like, you know, all of these uh, economic crises now, the crises that we're getting into, uh, exactly like that. You make so much money wrecking everyone and ruining people's lives and, you know, giving all these... Uh, like home uh, loans and stuff that you know can't be paid and you're just gonna screw these people over and get it back after two years when their interest rates rise and they can't afford it. And then that you're betting money that they're going to fail and shorting those bets and things like that. Like, I mean, at some point people need to go to jail for their like just cr our chronic problem of kind of like corporate fraud and you know malicious and even evil shenanigans. Well, you could do stuff, too, to make it extremely expensive for companies and actually continue to push the country towards green, right? So when you look at, like, offshore drilling, that's not that's public land, right? Uh, you know, the economic exclusion zone of the United States goes out 200 miles, but you know, a company can't just go out there without getting permission from the government. So the government could regulate all kinds of things. For example, you know, if you're going to have a, a, you know, deep water horizon type, you know, oil rig way out there uh, off the coastline, uh, maybe you have to pay like a $400 billion, well, maybe that's high, but you know what, I, I don't know the number would be, right? Like maybe a $100 billion, um, I mean, it's like when you move into an apartment, right? You have to pay a security fee. Maybe if you get an oil rig out there, you have to pay a $100 billion security fee that the government will give back to you if you don't make any mishaps. But, you know, anything happens, look, there goes your security fee. You know, oh, you just dumped 100,000 or 100 million gallons of oil <laughs> and killed, you know, right. like 30% of the birds out yeah. there. And then, you know, the fishermen are all out of work for the next six months because yeah. there's just an oil sheen over hundreds of miles of uh, coastline. Well, well, and the government can always our... figure out ways to keep the money no matter what, <laughs> you know, like like uh, like homeowners or renters do now. You know, they always yeah. keep the security deposit for some bullshit. Allegedly. I mean, you don't even have to do that. You could just give it back if they legitimately have, you know, oh, wow, you guys didn't do anything to pollute anything. Wow, amazing. Here's your money back. Like, thanks for all the taxes we made while you did that, too. Um, yeah. 
I just think, though, I mean, like, some of these sociopaths that just make billions of dollars for themselves and their companies screwing over whole governments and whole foreign, gov uh, whole foreign countries and groups of people and stuff, like, you know, I guess, is there some incentive we can do uh, politically to make some of those people work for the government? And instead of having, like, a Goldman Sachs sociopath just make, you know, the bank so much money and himself so much money in bonuses, is there some political incentive to get that guy to come work for the government and basically extract the same amount of money, but only from some of these like maliciously negligent banks? You know, can we can we start like uh, enticing uh, the same kind of like, uh, I guess, sociopathic quality in terms of like regulators and giving money to the people and for the people and protecting the people? Instead of just these, like, you know, corporate people that are just kind of exploiting everyone and everything. Yeah, I mean, you definitely could do that. Um, I mean, that's one of the things, too. I, I think about this way a lot, especially in terms of, like, the healthcare industry. Everyone talks about, uh, you know, if we have a government healthcare plan, doctors are going to get paid way less. You can make the same claim about regulators, right? But who's to say we don't have a healthcare plan where, you know, the federal government says, okay, we're just going to tier doctor pay. You know, we're going to use taxpayer money, and if you're a good doctor, you're going to get paid humongous amounts of money of taxpayer dollars. But, you know, look at what the good you do, right? You have 100% or 99% effective surgeries. You have, like, almost none of your patients die. You know, that's our money. We can use it however we want. So I, that's one of the things you could say about regulators, too. If you're going to have an effective regulator and they save the government X amount of money, what you know why do you have these caps of uh you know the gs system where you get capped at gs 15 and you know you know some people i, I don't know what it is like one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year or something like that is the cap pay uh who's really to say, like the top of the top in terms of government officials yeah yeah so who's to say like in a very effective government regulator that saves the government you know a hundred like million dollars of all the money you save taxpayers yeah and then if you're gonna get a good <laughs> regulator i mean you pay for them and, and that's the funny thing is like People think about taxpayer money and how we use it so weird. And to use like an example again from the healthcare industry, let's say you have Medicare for all and people say, well, doctors are going to get paid so little, they're going to not be doctors. It's like, why don't, you know, we pay the president 400 grand a year. Why don't we pay a doctor who does really well 400 grand a year? You know what I mean? Why doesn't that, I mean, it's our money. We can use it however, literally, I mean, that's the funny thing is you can use it literally however you want. And there's really, you know, the sky's the limit to what you use that money on. Now you can make the case that, you know, maybe we should have a balanced budget and, you know, uh, that's obviously a good case to make. But if you have a balanced budget and you're paying doctors 600000 a year for being great doctors and, you know, America's healthcare system's getting better and, you know, are the number of people negatively impacted by the healthcare system goes way down. Well, why don't you just pay all those doctors doing that good work? Um, you could do the same thing with regulators. You could do the same thing with everything, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a really big fan of this regulator idea. Of, <laughs> you know, you get a 10% commission on all the money that you save the government or, you know, like the EPA or something, like uh, all the fines or whatever you get on all these factories that are just throwing shit into the rivers. You get some kind of commission on that or whatever. Like that would be yeah. interesting to really kind of like uh, open up like the cutthroat, you know, free market uh, ideals, but only for the sake of the people, you know, <laughs> instead of for the sake of these like corporate entities that have, you know, that have no uh, no public disclosures of what they're doing, no uh, actual need to respond to public sentiment via, you know, like 
have, not having to have elections or oversight or FOIA or things like that. Well, that's big in the coal industry. The coal industry often has a bunch of companies that aren't, aren't even publicly traded corporations. They're private companies owned by like a family or a couple people, right? Or even an individual. So you talk about how much corporations that have to file every quarter with the SEC and, you know, have public relations with their stock investors. You take a private company, they're not beholden to literally anybody except themselves. So Yeah. I mean, there's still regulation and stuff, but, you know, what does Trump brag about? Cutting regulation on the coal industry. So you have a private institution, uh, a private company, uh, sorry, a private coal company that's not beholden to regulators because Trump cut the regulators. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they're not beholden to stockholders uh, because they don't, they're a private company. Then they can literally get away with murder. Right. Yeah. Any other thoughts? We're coming up in an hour now. Any last thoughts on this subject? Um, no, I just think the economics of uh, clean energy are, are fascinating. I think more people should think about them. And I think it's a huge opportunity for this country as a whole to make a lot of money. And I think it's a good way to get rid of a lot of immoral investments. Like you talk about um, getting people and hedge funds. I mean, here's another thing I, I forgot to mention earlier is like, look at the long term. If you know, think of how much money that's invested in the stock market are just retirement funds and 401ks, right? Um, and I don't know if you've ever had a retirement fund or money goes into it. A lot of these retirement funds do five-year increments of portfolios. So you'll have like a 2025 uh, uh, collection of investments that, it, you know, they call it your 2025 fund, your 2030 fund, your 2035, all the way to 2065. You know, so if you start working at like 18 years old, I mean, you're, you know, ostensibly you're investing for when you're 60 in, in 2050, right? So what you're going to see is a lot of these company, uh, companies that do these retirement funds. I mean, if you think in 2050 we're going to be off fossil fuels, you're going to stop investing in all those companies and all these retirement funds. So that's something that's kind of interesting for you to think about in your own invest investments, but also just the future of the economy, right? If you have a Democratic president for eight years who's doing everything he can to promote green and clean technology and to get off fossil fuels, you're going to see a massive amount of money from all these retirement funds getting away things from high dividend companies like oil companies and other fossil fuels because why would you invest in them, right? So I think that's something that's going to help. You know, I think what we'll end up seeing is a lot of quick movement towards a green revolution a lot quicker than many people, especially on the right, even think because the economic realities of the world as a whole getting off fossil fuels. I mean, you're going to start seeing massive change in 2030 and even more massive change in 2040 to get to the, you know, again, most important part of this debate, the publicly stated goal of getting off fossil fuels by like 2050. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good point for uh, like a maybe a closing thought for uh, the audience is you know, don't be the guy in 1908 and putting all of his retirement money into horse farms. You want to be the guy investing in the cars, you know. Well, I mean, like yeah. in the 1840s, <laughs> you want to be the guy investing in trains, which, you know, for this uh, for this example, you know, green technology is obviously uh, what we're on the cusp of right now. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing is, like, look at the Pony Express is a great idea. You know, the Pony Express is kind of like, uh, you know, where they use horses to literally cross the country to get mail from right. side, uh, coast to coast. And it's kind of funny because it, it had such a big part of the culture of the time. But, like, literally 18 months after the Pony Express was started, 
I think it was 18 months. It was very, it was like a year and a half later the Telegraph was invented, which made the entire yeah. Pony Express <laughs> and those thousands of riders and the thousands of horses completely obsolete. And the right. same thing with like, you know, this comp, the, the first like big uses of taxpayer money in this country's history were canals. Like the Erie Canal making like the Great Lakes connect to like the great rivers of this country. You know, they spent massive amounts of taxpayer money. And then like a few a few years later, they started putting railroads everywhere. And like all of those canals just became completely obsolete. And it was a huge investment of taxpayer money at the time, which is kind of funny. And that's right. really where we are with like clean and green technology today. Yeah. So. Uh, do you want to do you want to close with uh, anything you've read recently? Any books that you're reading that you might want to recommend to people? Oh well, one book I was reading. It's, it's both kind of enlightening, but also humorous, and then also depressing. Is this this book from like a, it was published in 1999, and it's all about uh, how to be greener and cleaner. <laughs> and it's just funny because all this stuff talking about how easy it is, and you know we could just do this, and if the government just did this, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of the book. Honestly, it's not even about the government. These were free market solutions to a lot of problems. Talking about how, like, you know, the air conditioning uh, uh, industry as a whole is, is mostly wasteful because, you know, if you're an air conditioning company, you get paid to sell a bigger AC unit regardless of the building needs it or not. <laughs> and yeah. it talks about little things like that, uh, you know, if, if you just position the building in a certain way based on the sunlight and put a tree here and a tree there you can you can cut down ac needs and heating needs by like 50 percent most of the year and it's just funny because there's all these things and it's so optimistic about what we can do and essentially we've wasted 20 years because it's now 2020 <laughs> right uh, and we're still talking about doing those things today so um yeah uh what about you um Let's see. I've been editing a lot because I'm making that book of the best of the halfway post. So I haven't been doing any in-depth reading, but I did finish uh, the book Herzog by Saul Bellow. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning book from the uh, late 60s or early 70s or something like that. And that was kind of an interesting uh, idea. Uh, I tend to read, I tend to switch back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. And so I got into a little bit of a fiction kick for like the last couple weeks to a month or whatever but the book's kind of interesting it's about this guy who he's kind of neurotic and he's going through his second divorce and he basically spends a lot of the book writing these letters to various people that he knows and famous people and politicians and stuff and he's just constantly writing these excerpts of letters that he never actually sends but just kind of an interesting idea into his like neurosis and uh uh, you know, just kind of like a crazy guy whose life is uh, kind of falling apart, but kind of fascinating. Oh, here's another good point. So in this book that I was talking about before, it's called Natural Capitalism, um, published 1999. It's by uh, three guys, Paul Hawken, Amory Levins, and L. Hunter Levins. But um, it's a funny book because it made the claim that a huge percentage of our gross domestic product, our GDP, is just waste, um, which is an interesting kind of thought. Now, this book makes the claim that uh, potentially upwards of 50% of our GDP, <laughs> so of all the financial transactions in this country, could be attributed to some form of waste or another. Now, it might be a little high, but it talks about things like um, uh, how much of the world's GDP is wasted uh, just by how many hours people around the world spend in traffic, <laughs> lost productivity, wear and yeah. tear of right. cars, more importantly, you know, gasoline consumption, just sitting in traffic. Uh, yeah. It talked about... 
I mean, it's really kind of a funny idea to think about. And, and it talked about how, like, a fact, I don't know if this is true or not, in 1999, but the book said it. It said 77% of the world's lawyers, the world's lawyers are in America. So, I mean, if America has so many more lawyers than every other country, it almost begs you to think why. And, you know, you can't help but imagine some of that has to be wasteful lawsuits oh, yeah, and course. pointless lawsuits wasting people's time. Uh, another fact, it said, uh, it, it made the claim that... Uh, uh, it, it, it cited some research that said that <laughs> the medical system in America in, in the 1990s was conducting something like 250,000 extra C-sections for baby deliveries that weren't needed uh, just so they could, you know, it, it costs X amount of money to deliver a baby, but then you can add another percentage of money just for a C-section so that doctors were prescribing all these C-sections for women who didn't need them so hospitals could make more money. And it's like, man, that's a lot of waste. Uh, and then talking just about like the, you know, just imagine the amount of rehab time and, you know, recovery time that's exacerbated for women after delivering a baby just because they had a that, C-section yeah, and someone cut into their abdomen criminal. for no reason. Yeah, but I mean, criminal. it's crazy to think about how much waste in this. I mean, another example it brought up is like... Uh, you know, the ridiculous amount of zoning in America that, you know, purposely uh, zones uh, any type of business away from uh, residential areas, which necessitates, you know, hundreds of thousands of extra people needing cars when they didn't need it. And then, you know, you add the waste of if you don't have a car, you don't need well, you're paying wear and tear and uh, service you don't need for a car. You're paying for gasoline yeah. you don't need. You're wasting your own right. time and wasted productivity because you're sitting in a car driving somewhere you don't need to drive to hypothetically. So and actually, kind of that actually uh, that destroys a bunch of cities. I've read a couple books on like city planning and stuff like that. And like the whole idea of kind of modern city planning is that you need a lot of mixed use stuff so that people are constantly going around and everything is safer when there's more people walking around. And so that like the best like city examples are kind of actually cities that got destroyed in recent history, like using America's example. So like San Francisco and Chicago that, uh, you know, San Francisco had a giant earthquake and Chicago had a giant fire at, at, right at about the turn of the century. So they got uh -huh. rebuilt and had much more like, uh, like kind of conscientiously designed city stuff. But Chicago is mm -hmm. a great example where there's restaurants and bars everywhere intermixed with a bunch of residential areas and there's really good transit. And the thinking is that like cities like Detroit, Las Vegas and St. Louis, they're just massive urban sprawl and you need those cities and every or you need cars, you know, and there's no mass transit that's really even possible. And uh, so you have these like giant residential areas that's nothing but residential stuff. And so that's actually where you get a lot of instances where cities are wildly unsafe. And then, of course, like you were saying, it's a lot of waste because like uh, look at, you know, um, the southern side of Manhattan where it's nothing but giant office buildings and banks and stuff. And so at night, all of that space and all of that stuff is just empty and not used. And you can't have good economy there because everything's, you know, all the restaurants and street vendors and stuff are only doing lunch. Everyone leaves and goes yeah. home for dinner. So, I mean, literally, it's like just the entire economy is built around, like, you know, the workday of all of these offices and then just that narrow two-hour period where most of them are eating lunch. And, you know, there's all kinds of lessons of waste and uh, lost potential there. Oh, here's, a, here's another point I wanted to make earlier. Uh, that's a good point. Um, you just made um and 
it kind of made me think of how stupid kind of our society is, especially with our economy, right? And, and you look at something like West Virginia, where a lot of coal miners were. And when you think about how little the government's doing to address climate change, one of those things should be thinking about how are we going to help those coal miners now, right? So that if you're an old coal miner, you can still, you know, coal mine for the next couple of years and then retire. But, you know, to some degree, if you know we're going to get off fossil fuels in the next 30 years or need to be, and, you know, it, it kind of makes you question, since those are Republican voters, what is the Republican Party doing to help them other than just unregulate? <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah. yeah, essentially it's nothing, right? But, like, that's a weird kind of economic... If you know this is happening, you know, it just makes me... It reminds me of Hillary Clinton, who, you know, was made fun of for going to West Virginia and saying, I will give West Virginia more public money from states that make more money so that they can try to divest from coal and do something else. But it's like... In the absence of that, they have nothing going for them, right? If yeah. you're starting a coal a coal mining job now, like good luck uh, when you're 50, because um, the right. economy is going to move away from you, and uh, your party that you vote for overwhelmingly has does not have your best. And the same thing goes for farmers in that regard too. If you're a farmer, uh, climate change is going to affect you way worse than almost any other job in America. Uh, you have higher drought. Um, less rainfall and uh you know that makes it really expensive for you to do your job because your uh your soil is becoming less fertile it's more likely your crop's going to die or something bad's going to happen to it which is going to put your premiums up so i mean every aspect of farming is going to get more expensive because of climate change and uh i, I saw a statistic 75 uh, percent of farmers voted for trump or something like that um in 2016 and um if you're not going to do anything about climate change uh, if you're a southern farmer or the southern part of the midwest like you're gonna have to drastically change how you do business i mean it's it, it, it's every, it permeates every part of your job right because you know there's examples of pests or weeds that once couldn't live north of texas or you know now found in iowa uh iowa's a huge farm like imagine the pesticide increase in expenses of trying to get rid of bugs and weeds you never had to worry about because they physically couldn't live there in your state in the past and now they're yeah. invading your crops uh, and that's another weird, perverse thing when you talk about subsidies, because the most farmers get a lot of their profits. Their net income comes from government subsidies that uh, subsidize their insurance if they have a bad crop, and more importantly, uh, you know, stabilizes uh, crop prices so that you know if wheat falls below a certain price, the government will pay the difference if it's below the price the government set, so that farmers still make a net income. Uh, because otherwise, you know, they, they spend a whole, you know, season growing a crop and don't make any money. Well, you know, that doesn't do them any good. So you have this really weird system where, the, again, the Republican Party isn't doing anything to help their own voters. And instead, they're just taking the campaign contributions from oil companies and, and coal companies, right. which is, is really kind of strange electorally, politically, whatever you want to say, right? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I mentioned this before, but driving through, like, Kentucky and stuff, and you see these, like, kind of, like, Kentucky mountainous dead cities right and like all the Republican policies that have shifted like all of the manufacturing and all the jobs overseas and the Republican policies that don't give any kind of economic stimulus to all the places that are affected and then you get all these disgruntled white people whose standards of living have been declining for decades straight and then they look at like 
uh, like a Mexican family moving in and starting a Mexican restaurant and they just sit there pissed off and they're like, look at those Mexicans. That's why our jobs left. That's why I, I have to work at Walmart. I don't even get enough hours for health insurance and shit. It's like just, it's so perverse to be pissed off and then like continue voting for the party responsible for like all of your problems in life, you know? But then, then to blame it on the Mexican family who's like done the only net positive thing for your city's like tax base in like 30 years or whatever, you know? Well, that's the funny thing because look at the Republican policies. That was the Republican policy, free trade. No questions asked, free trade, breaking down trade barriers. And the, the Democratic right. Party of like the the mid 2000 like the the decade from 2000 to 2010 was to a large degree kind of like a uh uh a labor uh party right no, you know, i mean like, going back to like uh you know nafta was the democrats were against it from the beginning you know that it, yeah i mean through the 70s and 80s when Dem uh, republicans really took on free trade democrats were against it saying hey let's look out for these people who are being screwed over when the factories leave and <laughs> close down and shut down you know, well, that's the most important. It's kind of ironic that Trump is just turning on its head, and I guess it's a testament to like the lack of critical thinking that so many conservatives and Republicans have that it, like it doesn't bother them that Trump just erased forty years of their economic policy and is now just pandering to them via racism. You know, fine. It's like yeah. you know, yeah, it's like those Kentuckians looking at the Mexican restaurant that just opened up and being pissed off like that's why their factory job left twenty years ago. Well, yeah, and that's the crazy thing is like this is the end result of Republican policy since Reagan. This is what the goal was, and it's happened, right? Right. Um, so another problem too is that the the Democratic Party was trying to put stuff in these free, uh, free trade deals that would uh, mandate certain uh, benefits and pay for developing world workers, which a would have been better for them in the long run, right? But more importantly, it would have kept a lot of those factories from leaving America because the labor costs would have been more expensive. Uh, I mean, you have you, you know you have a country that's paying people a dollar a day. Well, the Democrats like things like TPP, right? Tried to mandate certain benefits and pay for developing world workers, so that it's not a race to the bottom to the the people in whatever country will take the le the least amount of dollars to to do that day's work, right? And then, you know, what did Trump do? He immediately cut us out of TPP uh, immediately, even though it had safeguards that would have conceivably brought some jobs back to America uh, because of those required benefits and pay for developing world workers. And it's stupid because, you know, it, it screwed over China, which you'd think Trump would like, but China, you know, or sorry, Trump then just, you know, ripped it up and then said, let's do tariffs, <laughs> which, I mean, if there's one overwhelming lesson of economic history, uh, it, for the last like century and a half or whatever, it's the tariffs kind of screw over, uh, you know, the world economy. Yeah. Well, you can't have free trade and tariffs. It literally doesn't even make sense. So there's a, a clear inconsistency in the economic policy. Uh, you know, Trump's trying to brag for this new Canada-Mexico trade deal. And it's like uh, every trade deal picks winners and losers to some degree. And you, you can't have it both ways. And, you know, his uh, yeah. a lot of his voters just love him so much. They don't even think about those things. Yeah. Well, that's a good depressing place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. Thanks for listening to Brain Milk and enjoy the bar or <laughs> enjoy the guitar solo. Wow. <laughs>